Well, thank you, Leanne, and good morning, church family. It's so good to see you again. This is like two days out of three for many of you. That's pretty cool. I enjoy getting to see you that much. If you will, take your Bibles as our ushers are coming by and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at a very famous, for some of you, a very familiar story, but I'm praying you're going to see it with new eyes and new ears today. It's a story of what we call the wise men. And so one of the things about December 26th, and I have a brother who has a birthday today, and so we used to always tease him, man, it's a bummer to have a birthday on like the big letdown day, right? The day after Christmas. And, uh, but the reality is, for those of us who are in the church family, we can recognize that Christmas is not a day. Did you realize that? But Christmas is a season. So Advent leads us up to Christmas Day in which we spend 12 days in the Christian calendar celebrating the coming of the King. Did you realize that? The 12 days of Christmas isn't just a song. Instead, it's what Christians do to celebrate that our King has come. And then that leads us into the season of what we call Epiphany which means a light has dawned or a light has come. And so we focus after the new year, right after January the 6th, on the sharing of the light, on the sharing of the good news. And that comes from the story of the wise men, the story that we're going to dive into today. And this story has a lot to do with authority and who's in control and who's really in charge. Matthew paints it that way intentionally for us because that was always a big deal to God's people, authority, who was really in charge. And so we this season have a five-year-old who just turned from four to five in our home. And so we're learning a lot about authority these days right? Who gets to make the rules, who has to obey the rules. And so as we work with Skylar on these realities, we talk about these things a lot. And so she likes to ask the question, right? So, so who's the boss? Who's really in charge here? And so we've tried to teach her about God's plan, right? That all, all authority is derived from God, that God delegates authority. He, he does it, for instance, in the home to, to the dad who has the heavy responsibility of being the spiritual leader and to the mom who comes alongside of the dad. But if mom and dad are out and my mother-in-law lives with us, well, then grandma's the boss, right? Because she's in charge while mom and dad are gone. And if she's gone too, then it's her older sisters. And so we begin to think about these questions. And so the other day she said, daddy, when do I get to be the boss. Well, you know, maybe someday if the Lord allows you to be a mommy, you'll get to be the boss. And so follow up question, right? What do you want to do when you grow up, Skylar? I want to be a mommy, right? So smart little girl connecting the dots. She had a birthday about a week and a half ago. One of the first things she told me, daddy, it's my birthday. Today I get to be the boss, right? So Well, we build a day around you, but that's not exactly the way it works, right? I had to walk through that a little bit as well. But here's what's different about the birth of Christ. This child was born, and he was the boss. He was the boss of all the people, the king of the whole world. And that's what Matthew does not want us to miss in this story. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, 
because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, the reality for all of us is that we want to be the boss. We want to be the king. We want to be the ones in charge and in control. May we see today that this baby born in Bethlehem came to confront the world's understanding of what power looks like. Came to challenge who or what is on the throne of our hearts and our lives. So as we continue to celebrate your coming, may it challenge us as well to place you at the center of our lives and our hearts. Would we not only hear your word, but would we obey it this Christmas season? And it's in the matchless name of the King who has come that we pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So when a bunch of guys show up in town, especially as we'll see a group of Magi, When they say, where is the one born king of the Jews? Well, if that's true, that's going to alarm the person sitting on the throne. And so today we're going to recognize the fact that the coming of Jesus was not good news for everyone. We've celebrated as such because he is our king. But we have to recognize that Jesus and his coming confronted and challenged people from the point of his very birth. So today we're going to look at three reactions to the coming of Jesus. The first one, King Herod. King Herod was intimidated, which is ironic when you think about it, when you read the historical record of King Herod and who he was. For Matthew's audience, the statement after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in in Judea, in the days of King Herod, his audience would have heard, dun, 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 right? The music of the villain entering the scene in the movie. Because for so many of the Israelites in the first century, King Herod was a name that was synonymous with corruption, with selling out to the Romans, with power. One of my Advent readings this year has been a new biography called The Herods. And so I've been reading about the history of Herod and his family line. The subtitle, Murder, Politics, and the Art of Succession. Tells you pretty much everything you know about the man. You need to know about the man. Herod the Great, as he's often referred to, was brilliant. He was ruthless. He was a master kingdom builder. We have to give him credit. He was a shrewd politician. He was able to balance allegiances with the Jewish people and all of their ups and downs, as we talked about last week, with his allegiances to the Roman Empire. He was a military genius. In order for you to survive as commander-in-chief in in that era in history, you had to master not just one, but several types 
of ancient warfare, and Herod did it brilliantly. Many of his monuments still stand to this day in Israel. If you go to visit, the landscape is still dotted with his impressive building projects from Caesarea by the sea, this beautiful palace that he built on the Mediterranean, gleaming with marble, gleaming from, uh, so that sailors would see it from far off and would comment, right, that it looked like the sun was, was setting in the east because of the way that the sun shone off of it. He built a network of fortresses throughout Judea, at least six of them, and a series of palaces, all of which designed to create the illusion that he could be omniscient, that Herod might be in any one of these palaces or fortresses at any time, he and his cronies keeping an eye on the people. During the most chaotic century in the political history of Judaism, he ruled for over half a century. He begged, borrowed, and stole, and by uh, the, the Roman Senate at 33 years of old, gave him the title King of the Jews. Years ago, on my very first trip to Israel, had the chance to climb one of these monuments. And so here's a picture of me standing on what's called the Herodium. It's not even mentioned in the Bible. Over my left shoulder is the little town of Bethlehem. Isn't it fascinating? That Jesus was born in the most humble means, just within a stone's throw of where Herod had taken a hill and he had basically built a mountain monument to himself, put an amphitheater there. And so here's a picture of it from the sky. There's Bethlehem in the distance. This massive fortress that Herod built to himself to give that illusion of power and control. Because you see, when you gain power by force, you have to keep power by force. You have to rule by intimidation. You have to do anything possible in order to keep yourself in charge, to make everybody think that you are the king, that you are God-like. And so over time, as happened so often with world leaders, the power warped Herod. It went to his head. He was given over to perversion and paranoia. He killed, get this, two of his ten wives... He killed three of his very own sons. He killed a brother-in-law and, for good measure, a wife's grandmother who said some disparaging things about him. That was the kind of man that he was. It led the emperor of Rome at the time to issue this famous quote, It's better to be Herod's pig than his son. It's a play on words in the Greek, right? The word pig heist, the word son, curios. It's better to be his pig than his son. Why? Because Herod's not going to think that the pig is going to try to overthrow him. But Herod was a megalomaniac, and he was concerned that anybody and everybody was going to take over for him. As a matter of fact, part of what got under his skin so much, and Matthew alludes to this, the wise men showed up and they said, where is the one born king of the Jews? As you know, if you've read your Bible, genealogies are important to God's people. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy that traces out the lineage of Jesus to authenticate it. That he truly was descended from God's promised line. And so the issue with Herod was that he was born to a family that was half Jew and half Edomite. So he tried to win the allegiance of the Jews, declaring, I'm one of you, right? I'm one of your people. But they never accepted him. And so, again, this paranoia got to his head. And so he knew at the end of his life, no one would cry in Israel when he died. So he developed a diabolical plan. He was going to, upon being on his deathbed, have his commanders, his generals, summon all of the priests and all of the beloved city leaders to the arena at Jericho. They were going to wait for news from Herod. When that news came that Herod had died, 
They were to lock the doors to the arena and slaughter every priest and every community leader in Israel. Why? Because Herod wanted to be sure that there were tears at his death. That's the kind of man that he was. Thankfully, his commanders refused to go through with it upon his death. But that gives you a picture of what happens to worldly leaders when that power goes to their head, when they become more and more increasingly desperate to hold on to power. So what happens when an entourage shows up in Jerusalem, the capital city, and says, Hey, king, where's the guy born king of the Jews? It says in the text, Matthew, I think this is one of the great understatements in the Christmas story, says that he was deeply disturbed. It's putting it mildly, right? He was freaked out of his mind. Who, what could this be? Because the reality is, is that Herod had control and he wanted to keep control. And so we know if you follow the story a little farther, he decided that he would murder all of the baby boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem in order to be sure that this king would never threaten his throne or his successors. We call it the massacre of the innocents. We know that Bethlehem was a relatively small village at the time, so scholars estimate this was probably about 20 or so toddler and infant boys. In Herod's mind, that's child's play compared to everything he had done and all his other diabolical deeds. And so the reality is, as we look at a character like Herod, Matthew's audience would have heard this, right, in the days of King Herod and shuddered a little bit. And all of us want to distance ourselves from Herod as much as we possibly can. But we all also have to acknowledge, and I believe Matthew wants us to see this, that there is a little bit of King Herod in all of us. Why? Because we want to be in charge. We want to be on the throne. We want to be like God, right? The appearance because of technology that we can be everywhere and anywhere at the exact same time. In the Bible, places like Romans chapter 3 and Romans 8 teaches us that in our natural state, we want nobody else to tell us what to do. That's what a king gets to do, right? He gets to be the boss. He gets to tell everybody else what to do. And so all of us, to some sense, are afraid. What really bending the knee to Jesus will do, because it will change our plan, our agendas, our own kingdom building, our own legacy, our own lives, if we have to bend the knee to King Jesus. You see, Christmas is not good news for everyone. If Jesus is the true king, he's a threat to your way of life if you have made yourself king. In Herod's life, there wasn't room for any king but Herod. And so we have to make him room. And that's what Matthew is confronting us with in the story. But of course, Herod the Great is not the only character that's in the story. There are religious leaders and rulers who should know better as well. And that's our second point this morning. The second reaction to Jesus was by the religious leaders who, to be quite honest, were pretty indifferent. When King Herod heard all of this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Again, we'll see why in a moment. But these guys caused a stir on their coming to Jerusalem from the east. And so in this moment, and this is another sign that Herod, right, who claimed allegiance to the Jewish people, who claimed he was one of them, but he clearly did not know scripture because he had to go to those who did. And so it says he assembled all of the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where Christ would be born. Now let's be clear, chief priests in this era in the first century, they were appointed by Herod and approved by the Roman Senate. So they were sellouts. 
And then you had the scribes, those who spent their life, made their living as basically lawyers looking at the Torah and looking at the Old Testament. And so these guys, right, should have known it, whether by tradition or by their own study, they knew the answer. If you tried to play Bible Jeopardy against any of them, they would beat you hands down. They knew their stuff. And so look, immediately they answer. Where's this Christ, this Messiah? Where would he be born? In Bethlehem of Judea. And he quotes, they quote from Micah chapter 5. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Out of this little town will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this is fascinating to me. Because they give Herod the answer. And these are the guys who should have known better. Do you know how far approximately Bethlehem is from Jerusalem? Five miles. And yet there's no indication in the text that the religious leaders, upon this entourage arriving and saying, the king's been born, right? Where's the king going to be born? Bethlehem. They didn't even go look for themselves. They didn't seek it out. They didn't try to find. Why? Because much like Herod, they were in positions of control. And if a Messiah had been born underneath their nose, right, well, then this would change everything. And so their approach was to be indifferent. Herod's approach was to try to control the situation, manipulate the situation by force. Their approach was to basically stick their head in the sand and hope that whatever this little disturbance was, that it would just go away. Why? Because they liked things the way that they were. And so it's interesting, the polar difference, the polar opposite approach there. But the reality is it produces the same, the same result. They, they both missed it. Right? They both miss it. And so the reality for all of us is that we miss it too. Because oftentimes we have the word of God, we read the word of God, but we don't act on the word of God. These guys knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. They knew the Old Testament like the palm of their hand. And yet they didn't do anything about it. And so as we begin to think about entering a new year, I love that we have life groups and Bible studies. I love that we teach the next generations about God's word. I love that we stand up and read God's word. And you hear a sermon every week about God's word. But the reality is, is we also have to obey God's word. One of your greatest commitments as we move into, the new, uh, into a new year would be to not just be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word as well. To put God's word into action, to follow through with what it says. Because... These chief priests and scribes hoped that Jesus would just go away. But did he? No. About 30 years later, he would reemerge in Galilee, ministering, healing, preaching, confronting the powers that be. And now they had to do something about it, didn't they? And so they colluded with the Romans, of course, to have Jesus crucified. So it's interesting, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, king of the Jews, the next time we see it, is right before Jesus' crucifixion and on the sign that hung above the cross. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And so Jesus forces a reaction one way or the other out of all of us. But here is what is most fascinating about this story to me. It's the third reaction to Jesus. And that's the reaction of the wise men. The wise men who came to worship I don't want you to miss this. I want you to understand who these guys were because they've been caricatured in our culture. But the Magi, that is the Greek term for a cast of religious astronomer priests from the Persian culture. 
They likely came from Babylon. The Persians had conquered Babylon, and so that's likely where this group came from. But understand, these were the holy men of their culture. They used astrology, scanning the stars. They gathered the holy books of all of the empires they had conquered. They carefully looked at all of the different prophecies. They were revered. In our TV movies, the three wise men show up as like the three stooges, right? The bumbling comedic relief. It's not who these guys were. They were revered. They were treated like kings in their own culture. And so it's important for us to recognize that, that that's who they were. And they caused a ruckus in Jerusalem when they came because there were more than three of them. Where do we get the number three from? The gifts. We get their names from like medieval times. Some of you know I kind of have a thing about nativity sets. If you want to make your nativity set really accurate, here's what I want you to do. They're about to all go on clearance. Buy them, lots of them. Because it's likely that there were not three wise men, right? But there were dozens, if not hundreds in this royal entourage that came from Babylon. So you could have like 50 or 60 like wise men and their camels, right? All around your house, all marching to Bethlehem, to the stable, right? That, that would be a more accurate picture of what was taking place. Because this would have been an impressive entourage. Some scholars estimate the group mobilized to take this journey with all of their assistants and, and, and all of the, their guards because their safety in numbers, there weren't easy ways to travel, it was probably in the tens of millions of dollars it cost to mobilize this group of wise men to come searching for the one born king. We know it probably took them years. If you notice, there's all kinds of hints. They did not show up with the manger. Matthew time hops for us after Jesus was born in Bethlehem is the way the story starts. A little bit later, we see he is a child, not an infant anymore. They enter into a house. They're living in a house now. They're clearly not in the stable. And so we know that it's likely that a couple of years passed. Why? Herod dictated, right? All boys two years and younger. It takes a while to mobilize a group like this to be able to come. And come they did. And why did they come? Why were they watching for a star? Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. Because it's highly likely that what these men were doing was they were responding to a shred of prophecy given by Balaam. You remember Balaam, the talking donkey story in the Old Testament? Right, same guy. And so as God's people had come into the region where the Moabites were, the Moabite king sought out this other ancient wise man by the name of Balaam. And he tried to hire him to curse God's people. Balaam refused, supernaturally refused, once, twice, three times. And on the fourth time, Balaam uttered this oracle or this prophecy. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him. But not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel, and he will smash the forehead of Moab. So the people who succeeded the Moabites in that part of the world had been watching and waiting. Someday the prophecy said a king was going to rise out of Israel, and he was going to do what? Smash the Moabites. Therefore, we better be on our toes. We better know when this happens. And when he comes, we're going to be ready. And we're going to go pay him homage. And we're going to make him happy with us so he doesn't come and crush us forever. Now, I want you to see the contrast and the comparison. 
God's own people, Israel, their chief priests and their scribes. They had the entire Old Testament. And yet the Messiah was born under their nose and barely anyone knew about it. But these pagan astrologer priests who could not have been farther from being God's covenant people have a shred of God's word and they're watching and waiting. And when they see the sign, they mobilize at great expense to themselves in order to come hundreds of miles across the desert in an entourage in order to find him and pay homage to him. Do you get it? Matthew's helping us to see that Jesus was truly the savior of the whole world. And we know that they brought gifts. Now, there's an old joke about what would have happened if there were three wise women instead of three wise men. You know what would have happened, right? Here it is. They would have asked for directions. They would have arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby, brought practical gifts, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and there would finally be peace on earth, right? It's true. Often guys don't know what to bring as gifts. But the wise men knew what to bring a king, didn't they? And so what did they bring? Gold fit for royalty, frankincense, an oil that was used in worship. So that's fit for a deity. And they brought myrrh, often turned into a perfume, right? A symbol of humanity. It appears later as one of the elements that's used to embalm Jesus. They use it to embalm bodies during that time. Think about it. The whole gospel story, right? Right there in the three gifts the wise men bring. Royalty, this is who Jesus really is. Deity, he is God. Humanity, he has come in the flesh. It's the whole gospel in those three gifts. And what's even more remarkable to me is to think about this. God knew what was to come next. He knew Herod was going to commit murder, right? To kill those baby boys. He knew that to both fulfill prophecy and to be safe, that the holy family that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were going to have to flee to Egypt. Joseph was a humble carpenter, Mary a teenage girl without much of a dowry at all. How would they have afforded a trip to Egypt? Hmm, those three items that the wise men brought, incredibly valuable. You see, God provides, doesn't he? God provided for Mary and Joseph before they even knew that they were going to have a need. And so likely by the selling of those items, right, they were able to live in Egypt until it was safe to return. God is always at work in the details. And it's thrilling and exciting to see how he's on the move. I love this scene. Can you imagine being Joseph, a humble carpenter, being Mary, a teenage girl who just had a baby? And pretty much, again, as far as we know, the shepherds are the only other ones who know about it, who know who he really is. And they're raising toddler Jesus in this little house in Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, a knock comes at the door. And it is majesty. It is gold and robes and camels and an entourage. And they are bringing these gifts. Think about this scene. It says, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy entering a house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. You see, that's what Matthew's pointing to. That's what he recognizes we all must do. From kings to paupers, the rightful response to Jesus is to come to him and kneel. And they presented him with the treasures and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, right? They're obedient. 
obedient to what God revealed to them, and they returned to their own country by another route. And so for us, on this Sunday after Christmas, the idea of who's the boss, who's in authority, Matthew wants us to know. Let's build out a statement. Number one, he wants us to know that Jesus is the true king. I know it's tempting to look at the brokenness of the world around us. The darkness, as we talked about on Christmas Eve, that just seems to be creeping and crawling in every way into every facet of our culture and even our homes and our communities. It's tempting for us to think, right, that Jesus is not in control. But we know, and Matthew wants us to see, that despite appearances to the contrary, in the shadow, monuments built to kings, right, that Jesus is the king of the whole world. Herod had set up his own aristocracy, A humble carpenter, a teenage mom, they were certainly not part of the royal family. But Matthew tells us from the opening words of his gospel that this king came from the true line of kings. That this king was the king that Jesus had promised. Jesus is the true king and he's not only the king right, of God's people, but he's the king of the whole world. At his name one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You see, this is the scandal of the Magi. This is what Matthew's gospel, written primarily to a Jewish audience, this is what would have just really rubbed them the wrong way, to recognize that their own scribes and scholars missed it, to recognize that they had God's revelation and yet they ignored it. Instead, it was the pagans It was the astrologers. It was the people who were far off, who were drawn to the light, who responded to the light of the true king. Let me be blunt, right? The church people missed it. The pagans did not. That's a powerful message. And it's a message for each and every one of us who sit in the pews week after week, who read our Bibles, right? That we have to be intentional with following through on what we believe. Do we really believe Jesus is in charge? Then let's live like it. Is Jesus really the king of the whole world and is he going to return? Well, then what do we have to be afraid of? Let's share our faith. Let's be bold. Let's bring the light to the darkness. Let's give our lives and surrender for our king because we have nothing to fear, nothing that's going to hold us back. Jesus reigns, he's rules, and he's going to come back again. And to personalize it, let's finish our statement right. Jesus is the king of the whole world which challenges my way of life. If Jesus is the boss, then I'm not the boss. If Jesus is the king, then I'm not the king. And so today, my prayer for you is that you would put him on the throne of your heart and of your life. And today, we get to experience a special testimony to someone that God has brought, just like the wise men, from a long way off from the darkness into the light. This is proof, and you're going to hear it and see it today in a baptism. That God is still at work drawing people who are far from him to him to be changed by him as the true king. This is my friend, Allison Wagner. And this is her video testimony followed by her baptism by her brother, Evan Burcham. Let's watch together. I didn't have a very good childhood. My mom was an alcoholic. My biological parents got divorced when I was five. I was never one of those that wanted my parents to get back together because all they did was fight. My mom sobered up. She got out of rehab and then two years later married my stepfather. After I turned 18, um, my biological father died. 
I was angry. I was just kind of like, we had just kind of gotten back in touch. We were kind of getting to know each other again. And then he died. And I blamed God. I spent most of my 20s and 30s just kind of living a not very good life. I was into drugs and sex and partying and dropped out of college and just kind of went wild. And then had my first suicide attempt when I was 27 and got diagnosed as bipolar. It didn't really get healthy. I was on medication on and off. And then when I was 35, I had my second suicide attempt and just kind of hit rock bottom. I ended up calling the suicide hotline and had a great lady who basically saved my life. The kind of hole that I felt in myself wasn't just, you know, like pills weren't going to fill it. Like I needed God. When I moved in with my parents after I got out of the mental hospital, they wanted me to start, you know, kind of didn't push me to start going to church, but I knew that they wanted me to. So I started attending Station Hill with them. Got into a Bible reading group that kind of changed my life. I just was around women for the first time that like truly believed getting back into the Word of God, like to actually read the Bible. It has really helped guide me. God had planted like that seed in my soul and it eventually grew and it started to blossom, I guess. I just felt like I was called to be baptized because I had been saved. excited to see how God is working in your life now and in the years to come. And based on your profession of faith, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ and raised to walk in new life. And all of God's people said, man, it's what it's about. It's why Jesus came. It's why he lives. Continues to transform lives and hearts. There's always hope in him. So today we are so grateful for the family that continued to pray and never stopped giving up hope. We're grateful for the Savior that can reach into the darkest places and rescue us. We're grateful for a king who can change hearts and lives. And so today, would you bow your heads with me in this place? Because this Christmas season, the message is clear. If there is a true king, and if his name is Jesus, then we're not him. And whatever or whomever we put on the throne of our life must be deposed. So for you, maybe it's self. You've built up your kingdom of self, much the way Herod tried to build up his kingdom by scheming through power and control, through manipulation, through fear. Today, there's good news for you. You don't have to live that life anymore. Maybe for you, you're like the religious leaders. You've gone to church, you've heard the stories, you've sung the songs, but you have been indifferent to the power of the gospel. Today, would you respond? Today, would the wise men be our example? 
Would Allison be our example of one who's come and surrendered everything in order to worship at your feet? So whatever it is or whomever you are giving God-like status to in your life, if it's anything other than Jesus today, would you move yourself, would you move that person, that thing off your, the throne in your heart? And would you make Jesus your Lord and Savior? It's the most important decision that you could ever make. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. And upon your coming, even as a small child, you challenged the very way of life of the people all around you. Because even when it seems dark, the light is shined in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So we come. We come to adore you to worship you, to give you our all today. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing this Christmas hymn in response today.